If you have never felt the weight of a problem so utterly beyond you that you had no ability to do anything about it, then this sermon doesn't have anything to say to you. Uh, this sermon is about the dark night of the soul. It's about wrestling with God and about what happens when we do. And you're thinking, seriously, Taylor, on Christmas Eve, you're going to preach a depressing sermon? Yes, I am. Uh, no, it's not, hopefully not all depressing. It's the holidays. Uh, it's the end of the year. And the end of the year, though it can bring much joy and laughter and happiness, can also bring wrestling. It makes us aware of what we're wrestling with, with family. Some of us during the holidays, you're, you're spending more time than usual with your family, and that's not always an easy thing. It can be a challenging thing. It can make you aware of loss and, and bring back to mind uh, those who were once with you at this time of year who aren't anymore. It can bring up, as you reflect on the year, your own shortcomings, your, your dashed hopes from 2023 and the half-hearted resolutions you're going to make in 2024. And into that, we actually hear good news, which is that God comes to those who wrestle. This morning, we're in Genesis chapter 32. Turn there with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. <clears throat> then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of the Lord. This morning is our... Last full Advent uh, sermon. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we've been walking through this Advent uh, season, and the, the sermon series has been that God comes to us. Tonight we'll hear uh, a short little sermonette for a few minutes about God coming to us as a child. But over the last few weeks, we've seen all these different ways that God comes to us. We saw from Genesis 3 that God comes to us in our shame. Adam and Eve are created for this unique loving relationship with God, and they reject him, they turn away, they sin, and as soon as they do, shame enters into the picture, and they realize, the Bible says, that they're naked. And so they sew some fig, fig leaves together and try to make clothes for themselves, and then they go hide, and then they start blaming each other. And in their shame, they try to cover themselves, but God doesn't leave them alone. He comes after them. He says, where are you? And he seeks them. And then at the end of the story, he makes a covering for them that's better than the covering they made for themselves, which, of course, points us to the covering that we have in Christ. In Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, we saw that God comes to bless. His intention when he comes to us is not to clamp down on us. It's not to crush us. It's not to take from us, but it's to give to us. It's to give life. It's to give blessing. And so Genesis 3 through 11, things get worse and worse and worse. And then in Genesis 12, God just appears to this man Abraham, and he just starts promising him stuff. 
and blessing him. And, and the chief blessing is, or the, the one that all the others depend on, is that you're going to have a son. Now, Abraham was 75 years old at the time, so it seemed unreasonable and unrealistic, and 25 more years pass without it happening. And so then we saw from Genesis 18 that God comes to us in our cynicism. God had repeated his promise to Abraham over and over, but now he comes to Abraham's cynical wife, Sarah. And she scoffs when God makes the promise to her, but that encounter with God changed her. She had faith in him, and she believed him, and of course she did have a son. We saw in Genesis 22, their son is named Isaac. And out of nowhere, one day, God appears to Abraham again, and he says, I want you to take the child of the promise, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Of course, we saw in the end that, that God stops Abraham's hand, that God is not like all the other gods, that he's not actually the kind of God who requires that we make sacrifices to work our way up to him, but he actually comes down to us and gives the sacrifice in our place. This week, this morning, we're picking up with Jacob, seeing that God comes to those who wrestle. Jacob is Isaac's son. So background, God makes the promise to Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac gets married to Rebekah. They have two sons, Esau and Jacob. They're twins. And before, before they're even born, an angel appears, or rather God speaks to Rebekah, their mother, and says, there's, there's two warring nations in your womb. You're going to have twins. And he says, the younger one, is going to be Lord over the older one. The younger one is actually going to receive the blessing. But Rebekah evidently didn't believe this, uh, nor did Jacob as he grew up. As they're born, Jacob is, is grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And his name is, is, means literally he who grabs the heel. But we should understand that as, as meaning basically deceiver. It's a, that's a, a, a way of speaking about a trickster, a cheat, right? A con man. And he grows up, and because he doesn't really trust that God's promise was true, he decides he needs to steal the blessing that was already promised to him by God. So one day, he deceives his brother Esau. Esau has been out hunting. He's the manly man in the relationship. Uh, Jacob is more like me. He's the indoorsman. He's home cooking while his brother comes home from hunting. And his brother says, I'm starving. I'm going to starve to death. Give me some of that food. And Jacob says, okay, give me your birthright and I'll give you some, some food. And Esau says, well, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? He says, hand it over. Uh, and of course, later, right, Esau thinks, I, I thought we were just kidding. I thought you were joking about that. And Jacob's like, no, we, we shook on it, right? He steals the birthright from his brother. A little bit later, he steals the blessing by deceiving his father. <clears throat> his father never got on board with the word that God had spoken to Rebekah, his wife. Uh, evidently, uh, Jacob's favorite son, or rather Isaac's favorite son, uh, was Esau and not Jacob. And so he's dead set on giving the blessing to his oldest son, Esau. But because he's old, because he can't see, Rebekah helps her son Jacob trick her father and her father, uh, his father, and his father blesses him. And a little bit later, Esau comes in to receive his blessing. And, uh, and Isaac says, if, if you're Esau, who did I just bless? Right? And it just like the whole family blows up. Dad's angry. He's, he's trembling. He's shaking. He's mad. Esau, of course, gets so angry that he wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob's mom says, look, you got to get out of here, right? So he runs away. He takes his blessing and runs away. And he ends up with this guy, Laban, who is a distant relative. And it's with Laban that he gets the first taste of his own medicine because he falls madly in love with one of Laban's daughters. He says, what do I have to do to marry your daughter? 
Laban says, work for me for seven years. At the end of seven years, uh, you can marry her. And so at the end of seven years, it's time for the wedding. And uh, of course, the, the bride is wearing a veil over her face and Laban gets Jacob, uh, he has you know, a few extra holiday cocktails. And by the next morning when he wakes up, he realizes, oh my goodness, that, that cheat gave me the wrong woman. It gave me the wrong daughter. So he goes to him and says, what, what, what's the deal? And he says, work for me for another seven years and I'll give you my other daughter in marriage. Uh, and so he does. Talk about dysfunctional families. Uh, what, whatever sort of dysfunction you think you're dealing with in your family this week over the holidays, just go read Genesis. And I promise you it's not worse than what you find there. Uh, Jacob gets the best of Laban in the end. He kind of tricks him back and he ends up leaving, taking basically a bunch of Laban's possessions with him. But then uh, in Genesis 32, he has this moment where it's all coming down on his head. God tells him, go to Bethel. Bethel is, it means the house of God. It's a place where God had met with Jacob before. He had this amazing vision and encounter with God, and he named the place Bethel, the house of God. It's a high place, and God tells him, hey, I want you to leave where you are and go back to Bethel. But on the way, he comes into the land where his brother Esau lives, and now he's, he's terrified. It's years and years later. He knows what he's done to Esau. He knows Esau is still bitter about it, angry. He knows Esau has grown and become powerful and become wealthy, and he has a lot of men there living with him who could do a lot of harm. He knows that Esau was always going to beat him in a, in a wrestling match in the first place, right? And so he's terrified, and it leads to this, this moment where he, he pulls out all the stops for this last-ditch effort to try to appease Esau. He sends a bunch of messengers ahead of him, to offer gifts and basically tell Esau, look, we're coming from your brother Jacob. He's been really successful in his business ventures. He's gotten really, really rich, and he'll give you whatever you want uh, just because he wants to make you happy and he loves you and he wants you to forget about everything, right? What is his response? The messengers come back and they say, Esau is coming to you and he has 400 men with him. <laughs> now, every now and then around the holidays, you, you come across these articles, right, that are like, what to say to your racist Uncle Bobby at uh, the Christmas table, or you know, how to respond if your cousin drinks too much at Thanksgiving. I've never come across an article that says what to do at Christmas if you think your brother might bring 400 men to try to kill you. But that's the situation that Jacob finds himself in. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, says, nothing could be more ominous than Esau's silence and his rapid approach in force. And it leads to this dark night of the soul for Jacob, where he knows that he's tried everything, and he's spent his whole life tricking people and deceiving people and stealing from people and cheating people, and now all of his decisions, all of his actions, all of his past are coming back down on his head, and he is absolutely, utterly powerless to do anything about it. This dark night of the soul reminded me of, uh, and just the life of Jacob actually, reminded me of the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Uh, Leo's character is Frank Abagnale Jr. He's a, he's a deceiver, he's a trickster, he's a con man. He grows up and his dad is sort of this like low-level con artist who's always in trouble with the IRS. And he's like, you know, he watches his dad, he's growing up, he watches his dad pulling all these tricks and always being chased down by the law. He watches his mom leave his dad because of all the crazy stuff that his dad's gotten into. But he grows up and he's basically like, I'm going to be successful where my dad failed. I'm going to make him proud. I'm going to do everything that he did, but more. And so he becomes this like fake pilot and fake surgeon and fake professor and gets really, really rich. 
in the process, all in the span of just a couple years. And meanwhile, the FBI is chasing him, and that's Tom Hanks' character, is uh, uh, an FBI agent named Carl Hanratty. And he comes close to getting him, but he, he doesn't find him. And then one, one moment, you know, two-thirds of the way into the movie, it's Christmas Eve, and Leonardo DiCaprio's character calls Hanratty, the FBI agent. He says, here's where I'm staying. He says, I'm sorry about last time when you almost caught me. I didn't mean to embarrass you, but why don't we just talk? Why don't you come meet me? I'm in this hotel room, and we'll, we'll talk like men. And, and he keeps kind of dragging out the phone conversation, and at some point, Tom Hanks' character says, you're not telling me where you are. You don't want to talk. You're calling me because it's Christmas Eve, and you don't have anybody else to talk to. You don't have anybody else to call. It's this moment for Frank where all of the decisions of his past are coming down on his head. He's not necessarily afraid he's going to be caught, but he's just lonely. And it's Christmas Eve, and he doesn't have anybody to talk to. And the irony is, of course, that the Tom Hanks character is at the office on Christmas Eve by himself, because just like the other character, his decisions have led him to a place in life where he's utterly alone. For Frank Abagnale Jr. and for Jacob in the Bible, the dark night of the soul uh, came as a result of a few factors. It's interesting, the, the commonalities between these guys. Notice their family of origin. For the guy in Catch Me If You Can, like his dad did the same thing, right? But think about Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. Do you remember what his grandfather Abraham did when, when they're traveling and he's afraid that, that, that the, these powerful kingdoms are going to take his wife and kill him. And so he says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. He deceives him. He does it not once, but twice. And then you keep reading. Uh, this struck me like this past year for the first time. You get to, uh, I don't know, Genesis 27, Genesis 28, and I believe it's 27. And Isaac does the exact same thing that his father did with his wife. He says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And he, he does it with the same king who must be like, what is wrong with you people? Why do you keep telling us that your wives are your sisters? So deception runs in the family. Jacob is just being true to what's been handed down to him. Uh, not only family of origin plays into this, but cultural expectations, right? The cultural expectation is that the older brother gets the blessing and not the younger brother. God had said that Jacob would get the blessing, but he's, he's terrified to just believe God and receive his plan because the expectations are, no, the older son gets the blessing. But of course, ultimately, it was his own decisions, his own choices that led him into this dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul can come in many different ways. It might have come or it might come for you as a result of your own decisions. The, the way that you've treated people, the way that you've spoken to people, the way that you've worked or not worked, or, or what you've done in your life, it may lead to a dark night of the soul. It might come not because of your own decisions, but because of the decisions of others. It could be things that have been done to you, or things that have been done to those you love, or things that have been done around you that lead you to this moment. It might come from seemingly random circumstances or events that are completely outside of human control, right? natural disaster, untimely death, just like things that happen that are totally unexpected that you can't account for, but that have brought you to a dark night of the soul. It might come through internal or external struggles, through personal struggles or family struggles, through financial struggles. It might come through anxiety or fear. It's just crippling or depression or wrestling with death and mortality and loss, abandonment, failure. The dark night of the soul can come in many ways, but eventually it must come. Eventually it must come. 
Kidner, again in his commentary, points out that in Jacob's pilgrimage, the way to the heights now led through a valley of humiliation. Jacob is going to Bethel. He's going to a high place, but he has to first go through this low, deep, dark valley. And he also, Kidner also points out, geographically, he says, the call to Bethel would take him nowhere near Esau. But spiritually, he could reach Bethel in no other way. He's saying that if he had gone on the shortest route, the straight line from where he was to Bethel, he wouldn't have gone anywhere near Esau. But God was not going to lead him back to the place of God's presence, to the place of intimacy with God, to the place of this spiritual breakthrough without first leading him through his brother Esau. He, he wanted to lead him to the place of the promise, but he wouldn't let him go there without making him pull all the skeletons out of his closet, without making him face who he was and what he had done, without making him look directly at his greatest fears and darkest anxieties. And the same is true for all of us. If you're content with a sort of ho-hum spiritual life, where you believe in Jesus and you're going to go to heaven when you die, but that's about all that matters to you. You don't care about intimacy with God. You don't care uh, about living for Jesus and experiencing the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you're, if you don't care about these things, then you don't need to worry about the dark night of the soul. But if you are going to go to that place of intimacy with God, what was true of Jacob must be true of you. If we want to get to the mountaintop of intimacy with God, we have to go through the valley of the soul's dark night. We have to pull out the skeletons. We have to look at them, our fears, and bring them before God. And this is the dark night of all souls. At, at the bottom, at the root, the, 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 the problem that we face that is greater than family or finances or depression or fear is that we all face a spiritual problem of our own making that we are utterly unable to do anything about. All our choices will eventually come back on our own heads. It's the problem, of course, of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that all have turned away from God. We've transgressed God's law. We've broken his law because we don't love him, because we love ourselves and just use him and use others. And the wages, the reward, the earnings for that, Romans 6.23, is death. When we come to this moment where we recognize this, where we start to wrestle with this, where we realize our helplessness to do anything to solve our spiritual problem, we begin to realize what John Calvin said about this passage, that God, in his inscrutable and mysterious wisdom, fights both for us and against us. God wrestles with us, and he fights both for us and against us. In fact, he fights against us first. He has to pin us to the ground first. And only then, when we surrender, when we give up, does he fight for us. What happens during Jacob's dark night of the soul is he's laying there just riddled with anxiety, can't sleep. A guy shows up and wrestles with him all night. This is so weird. Do you ever read these stories and stop and think like, this is so weird. He wrestles with him all night and it's a dead heat, a tie, it goes into double overtime, and Jacob won't let go, and the man sees that, that Jacob won't let go, but then, and this is strange, the man just places a finger on Jacob's hip, just touches him, like he pushes a button, and he dislocates his hip. What? Was he just toying with him the entire time? 
This is, this is like when you're, you know, when dad's playing basketball with the kid and it's first to 11 and it's a tie at 10 to 10 and then all of a sudden dad turns into like Michael Jordan and he's blocking every shot and, and you know, you just realize that he was just toying with him the entire time. This is what the wrestler is doing. The man, though, still, he tells Jacob, even after he's broken his hip, to let go of him, but Jacob still won't let go. Notice, this is very undignified at this point. It's sort of pitiful. Jacob's lying there with a broken hip. He can't move his leg, but he still won't let go of this guy. He's clinging to him for dear life, and he says, I won't let go until you bless me. Jacob is sort of a tragic hero, isn't he? It's tragic the way that he is like. He's been deceiving people to try to be blessed his entire life. He hasn't believed or trusted that God is going to bless him. And here at this moment in the middle of the night with this stranger, even defeated and broken hipped as he is, he won't let go until the man blesses him. It's tragic. We pity him, but we also admire him. Because even here, he won't let go. He says, I won't let go until you bless me. And in the end, the man does bless him. And what a blessing it is. What's your name? The man says to him. You remember what Jacob means? Deceiver, cheat, liar, trickster, heel grabber. This has been Jacob's identity his whole life because he hasn't trusted God to bless him. So he's been working in his own ability, in his own smarts to steal it, in his own cleverness to take it from others until this moment when he's utterly powerless. He can't do anything about his problem with his brother Esau. And now he's wrestling with this guy and he's got a broken hip. And the man says, say your name out loud. Who are you? He says, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. This is who I am. This is who I've been. This is what I've done. And the man looks at him and he says, Jacob, that's not your name anymore. Your name is Israel. The etymology of Israel is interesting. There's basically two different camps on what the word literally means. Some people say it means he who wrestles with God. And other people say it means he for whom God wrestles. And I always ask, why not both? (laughs) That certainly would make sense of the passage, wouldn't it? He who wrestles with God and he for whom God wrestles. From this moment on, the man says, you've been wrestling with God your whole life, but you're not going to keep doing it. You're not going to keep stealing the blessing from the hands of other people. You are the one who has wrestled with God, but now you are the one for whom God wrestles. God will work for you, and he will give you the blessing by his grace, and you will receive it by faith. Just notice four things here about this wrestling match. One, which I've already said, is that Jacob won't let go until he's blessed. He holds on for dear life, believing. It's, it's worth commending him because he believes that there's a blessing to be had, and he keeps holding on until he gets it. Second, he receives a new name. He had to acknowledge, though, who he was first. Before he can be changed, he has to admit and confess who he is. Third, he limps for the rest of his life. This encounter with God did not you know, we go to God and we expect to get like a boost to get us through our day. And instead, he gets a permanent disability. He's handicapped for the rest of his life. He limps for the rest of his life. And fourth, he realizes, verse 30, I wrestled with God. 
And not only did I just wrestle with God, but I think what we're meant to take from this is that he realizes it's God I've been wrestling with my whole life. I haven't been wrestling with Esau. I haven't been deceiving my dad. I haven't been fighting with Laban. I've been wrestling with God my entire life. What can fellow wrestlers learn from this story? As you're sitting by the fire uh, between now and New Year's, or you're walking your dog on a chilly walk bundled up, or you're driving to see family and the kids finally fall asleep in the car and you have a few moments for silent reflection on the year that's passed and the one that's ahead and you're thinking and maybe wrestling with the fact that your life is not where you thought it would be at this point. That things aren't exactly how you hoped they would be. Your family dynamics are disappointing to you. Your relationship status is not what you thought that it would be, your, your financial state, your mental or emotional health, your marriage is not where you thought it would be at this point. How can the story of Jacob help you? It can help you in a few ways, I think. First, learn from Jacob. Don't stop wrestling. Don't let go of God until he blesses you. Whatever it is you're wrestling with, whatever the thing is that's on your mind right now, Take it to God and tell him, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm not letting go until I see what you're doing in this. And it may be overnight. It may be for the rest of your life. But don't stop wrestling. I have to say, you know, I have, have a number of friends who over the last five, six, seven years have walked away from their faith, have walked away from the church, or have, have you know, their, their faith has fallen apart. And some of them will sometimes say things like, well, I, I just started wrestling with God, and I just need some space to wrestle. And like, the church didn't give me room to wrestle with God. And, and maybe that's true. Like, we, sh- we do need to give people space to wrestle. We need to invite people to wrestle. But I think what often happens is they let go too soon. They actually, they, they give up when it gets hard, and they stop wrestling. Because it's easier to just, to just let go and walk away. Don't stop. Believe like Jacob that whatever it is that you're wrestling with God about, that there's blessing to be had in it. And just tell him, I'm not letting go until I see what it is. Second, don't expect to leave unchanged. When we wrestle with God in prayer, in circumstances in our lives and our suffering, what we often want is for our circumstances to change. And what God is most concerned with is that we would change. We, we wrestle with him about our difficult marriage, and what he may be doing is not fixing our marriage overnight, but giving us perseverance, giving us grace, giving us patience. We wrestle with God about singleness and what he may be doing is not giving you a spouse next year, but teaching you to be so content in him that you no longer feel like you need one. We wrestle with God about our financial situation. What, what he may be doing is teaching you to be so radically simple in the way that you live and generous that even when it feels like you have no margin, you're able to live with incredible generosity and watch your world grow larger and larger and larger. We want God to change our circumstances, and he wants to change us. And this may mean, like Jacob, it will mean, like Jacob, that we have to say out loud who we are. If you want God to change you this year, you have to admit who you are now. You may have to say, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a liar. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm self-righteous. I'm envious. 
of other people's lives. You may need to say this out loud and let God keep wrestling you and work with you and tell you that's not who you're going to be anymore. You were, as 1 Corinthians says, you were washed, you were cleansed. That's who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. Third, don't expect to come out of it stronger. <laughs> yes, you know, again, we think that I'm going to wrestle in this thing with God and I'm going to come out stronger on the other side. Yeah, you may limp for the rest of your life. You may come out weaker from all earthly appearances. Of course, you'll be stronger in a sense, right? You'll have gone through what you needed to go through. You'll be changed internally. You'll have more virtue, more strength, more wisdom. But throughout the Bible, we see this theme that worldly wisdom and worldly strength are utterly unable to accomplish what we most need. The circumstances that we cannot solve, we can think all we want, we can work as hard as we can. We cannot, we, we are utterly incapable of moving the needle. Only God's wisdom and God's strength can do what we most need. And they seem to the natural eye like foolishness and weakness. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than at the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, when I was among you, I made it my effort to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. <laughs> he says this, you know, the, the, some people want wisdom. They, they want a really smart intelligent, gifted speaker who can persuade the masses. Some people want power. They want a display of impressive power and show. And he says, all I've got for you is Christ crucified. And to the world, that seems like foolishness and weakness, but it is the wisdom of God and the power of God, which alone is able to save. 